At the start of this month, Jeff Fisher and Kirsten Guerra joined me to tell their stories. Well, they'll be back today for cameos to help someone else tell his story. Is college worth it these days? And we're going to take a small cap stock through its rule breaker paces this week as well. An up and comer company in the fitness business. The stock wasn't my idea, it was yours. That's because this episode is your mailbag. I do have a few ideas of my own, though, like not trying to be a bear market hero. What is a bear market hero? Well, I'm glad you joined me. Let's talk about it. Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I had fun last week. Hope you did, too, with surprise stories and moments that surprise from investing, business, and life. Surprise being a huge impression maker on many of us as human beings. The stories that we tend to remember are often the ones that contain surprise. The lessons that we remember, usually the same. Surprise was also the start of a new episodic series. I note that I now have 20 active episodic series for the Rule Breaker Investing podcast. Surprise being the number 20. And of course, mailbags are the longest standing in many ways and the most numerous of those 20 active episodic series. This is the 78th consecutive monthly mailbag for Rule Breaker Investing. Doing the math, yep, seventh year of monthly mailbags. You know, I really enjoy the mailbag because it's my opportunity just to sit here and wonder what's on your mind. And you drop us notes, rbi at fool.com is the email address. You tweet us out at RBI Podcast on Twitter. Probably doesn't have a blue check mark anymore, but it's still legit, I promise. And sometimes your questions are kind, and sometimes they're tough, and sometimes they're fascinating. But no matter what shows up, I comb through and ask, what would make for the best mailbag that particular month? And it is truly a delight to interact with you. I've always loved the interactivity of the internet as a medium. Those of us who grew up with just, I don't know, paper, bricks and mortar, things that just sat there and looked at you but didn't necessarily interact with you, once the internet showed up in its earliest form, of course, just private online dial-up services like America Online, now almost four decades ago, from their earliest days, I just loved that all of a sudden you could write something and have somebody reply back. These days, you can podcast something and have people write back, write in. And that's what we feature at the end of every month for Rule Breaker Investing. This month, no exception. Speaking of the month that was, we had three previous podcasts in April. The first was Telling Their Stories, Volume 5, with Jeff Fisher and Kirsten Guerra. As I mentioned at the top, Jeff and Kirsten will be joining me a little bit later for some life perspective and life advice for somebody who's fascinated by investment analysis at a young age. April 12th, the second Wednesday of April, we did a review of Palooza with two past five-stock samplers, one of which had the most dramatic up and the most dramatic down of any group of five stocks I think I've ever heard of or thought about. But yeah, I actually picked them, and we reviewed those. The numbers for that sampler were not pretty. I'm happy to say the overall numbers for our historic 35 stock samplers are pretty sweet, but not the five stocks for the coronavirus, as you discovered two weeks ago on this podcast as we did a review of Palooza. And then, of course, last week was surprise. 
And speaking of surprises, well, it's not really a surprise because I've already put it out there, but I am very excited on next week's podcast to be welcoming back futurist, longtime spectacular writer and editor and friend of the fool, Kevin Kelly, author of the wonderful book, The Inevitable, from 2016. I had Kevin on this podcast several years ago. We went through that book. We're going to touch base on that book again seven years after he wrote it. Where has Kevin been most right in his predictions about the future? Where might he have been wrong? And what does he think of the world in 2023? And I know one thing that he thinks. He thinks that he hopes you'll read his next book, and I do too, because we'll be discussing that next week as well. Excellent Advice for Living is Kevin's book that comes out literally next week as we talk with him on this podcast. So I'm very excited to have Kevin Kelly rejoining me. Tell your friends, if it's cold in your neck of the woods this time of year, Southern Hemisphere people, it's actually quite cold in Washington, D.C. this week as well. Maybe put a fire on and listen in. Kevin Kelly with Rule Breaker Investing next week. All right, well, let's go to a few Twitter hot takes from the last few weeks at Gaurav K. Investor. Gaurav, you wrote that. This was an amazing episode. Loved listening to Jeff Fisher and Kirsten Guerra. Having followed Jeff before in the Motley Fool Options service, I especially wanted to hear from him, and this episode was great. Well, I agree, it was great, Garov, and any Telling Their Stories episode is only going to be great if the people coming on to tell their stories have great stories to tell and tell them well, and both Jeff and Kirsten did that, and I'm so glad you enjoyed that. At Pops Spiffy on Twitter, of course, one of my favorite handles on Twitter, I really enjoyed these episodes. Jeff Fisher and Kirsten Guerra's stories were so enlightening. I have to admit, Pops Spiffy writes, I started laughing when Jeff was talking about dialing the phone to his brokerage to get stock quotes. That was, of course, back in the day. At Pops Spiffy, you said, I used to be calling at work when I had downtime so many years ago. You know, it is decades ago now, but for those of us who've been around for a few decades, it doesn't really feel that long ago that we were using push-button phones to type in ticker symbol letters to find out how our stocks were doing at that moment. And of course, the automated voice would read back the stock prices in fractions, because that was also before the decimalization of the stock market. So yes, I have to laugh a little bit myself at Pop Spiffy. Finally, Matt Hard at 307 Fool reacting to the review of Palooza episode of a couple of weeks ago. Great at RBI podcast episode, Matt. You wrote, The whipsaw of the past three years was relived, and there are so many great lessons. Higher highs often can lead to lower lows. Hopefully, we're all better investors after living through an interesting part of history. Hashtag Fool On. Well, hashtag Fool On yourself, Matt. Thank you. For that. And in fact, one other Twitter hot take becomes rule breaker mailbag item number one this month because Kelly on Twitter, you tweeted me back about the phrase bear market hero, which I myself had tweeted. And you wondered aloud on Twitter, what does that mean? What does bear market hero mean? And I said, well, why don't you write us, rbi at fool.com being the email address, and I might speak to it on this month's podcast. Kelly, you did. It was a short note. Here it was, rule breaker mailbag item number one. Hi, I saw David Gardner mentioning this term in one of his tweets, bear market hero. Seeing bear market hero, what I picture is dollar cost averaging to save your investment by lowering your cost basis 
even though you could be catching knives, Kelly writes, but the way you wrote it sounds like it's selling everything before it drops even lower. It's confusing. Signed, Kelly. Well, first, let me just read in its entirety, it's less than 140 characters, what I tweeted, and then let's go a little bit deeper here. What I actually wrote was, remember, the market drops one year in every three historically. It doesn't make any sense to jump in or jump out. So, I try not to be a bear market hero, and thus, I'm going to take my lumps. I don't sell out ahead of time. I just ride it all the way through. So, that is the full text. And Kelly, you pulled out the phrase, so I try not to be a bear market hero, which I'm going to speak to in a sec, but I'm just going to reread that without that line at all, because really, this is what I was trying most of all to express, and that, of course, I want to bring to this podcast and emphasize here. Remember, the market drops one year in every three, historically. It doesn't make any sense to jump in or jump out, and thus, I'm going to take my lumps. I don't sell out ahead of time. I just ride it all the way through. And I think anybody who's listened to this podcast for a month or a year or more will know that that is indeed authentically what I've always done as an investor. I've practiced what I've preached. It hurts in downtimes when one year in three, the stock market actually loses value. Your money loses value. Your portfolio declines in value. Your net worth drops one year in three, if you're making a lifetime commitment to the stock market, to being an investor as I have, and I think many listening to me right now have done so, then you know that's going to happen so many times over the course of your life. And for this reason, it doesn't make any sense to me to jump in or jump out. In fact, the taxes that you're going to pay on capital gains by trading in and out like that are painful, and a lot of people aren't necessarily good once they've sold at rebuying at the right time. Sometimes they wait too long and feel like the market or a stock got away from them. And so, again, I'm going to take my lumps. I don't sell out ahead of time. I just ride it all the way through. These are lines entirely consistent with what I've always said and, indeed, exactly how I've always invested. Now, let's go a little bit deeper with just the phrase, bear market hero. What does that mean? Well, I think it means at least five things to me, real quick. The first thing it means is, I think a bear market hero is somebody who thinks more about bear markets than bull markets. And when you remember, of course, that the market's all-in annualized returns are typically around 10% over long periods of time. That's right, an average annual gain of about 10% a year. That includes all the bad times as well. Being a bear market hero doesn't make a lot of sense to me, if you're thinking more about those bear markets or worried, point number two, about those bear markets, more so than, of course, the inevitable bull markets that will come along and wipe away the losses and sadness of those occasional bear markets. So, the second thing I think of when I think of bear market heroes are people who are focused, maybe the point of obsession in some cases, on downside protection. Now, I do want to make it clear, if you're near the end of your investing life, if you're living off your portfolio for income, many listening to me right now, that will be true of you. Of course, I think that being focused on protecting your downside, being diversified, being more in income, maybe fixed income in some cases, not just in stocks all the time, makes a ton of sense. So, like most things in financial advice, 
you have to kind of figure out what your own context is and then seek the advice that makes sense for who you are. When we, through Motley Fool podcasts or through Motley Fool articles, publish, what we're sharing is our best ideas. We're giving you what we do or what we think, but it's always going to be ultimately on you, the person pressing the buy or sell button on his or her own portfolio. It's going to be on you to figure out what makes sense for you. But at least to me, I know some people out there who are looking to be bear market heroes, and they are really focused on the downside. And that's against a backdrop of a market that goes lower left to upper right over any meaningful period of time. The third thing I think of about bear market heroes is that they may well outperform during these times. You know, when the stock market one year and three drops, the bear market hero may well do well and sometimes can be seen crowing about how overpriced things were just before they dropped. And there's maybe some self-satisfaction sometimes. True heroes, and I'm sure some bear market heroes are true heroes, wouldn't be taking too much self-satisfaction in any market calls that they made. But outperforming, let's say when the market drops 15% and you're only down 5%, I mean, it feels good. I wish that were true of me each time. But in my experience, outperforming in bull markets in good times is where the real juice is. So, again, I try not to be a bear market hero. Typically, my stocks that I stay invested in over years and decades often lose more money than the market itself. The The very nature of rule-breaker stocks often plays out that way. And again, I'm okay with that because I'm not trying to be a bear market hero, which reminds me of the fourth point, which is a lot of the time, bear market heroes are trying to time the market. Being a hero means that you got out just before the bear market happens. And then presumably, if you're, I guess, really good at this, and I think few are, you're getting back in just before the market rises again. And you might even do that well in a given market cycle, or maybe even a couple. But to consistently do that over the course of a life is impossible, I believe. I think mathematically, that could be demonstrated. But even if somebody were very good at it, it's exhausting and tax inefficient. And I certainly don't want to work that hard as an investor. I'd rather spend my time doing other things. So, again, I think a lot of bear market heroes are indeed trying to time the market. The old saw goes, of course, it's time in the market, not timing the market. That describes a lot of Motley Fool investing. And maybe the fifth and last thing I think of when I think about the phrase bear market hero is just the word hero. And I think often bear market heroes are celebrated pundits who may have said, stocks are overpriced in 2007, get out, the market's about to drop. Or stocks are overpriced in the spring of 2021. Or the spring of the year 2000, get out, the market's about to drop. And I think the media in particular has fascination with the people who lick their thumb, hold it up to the wind, and say, things are about to head south. And when they're right, it seems to me these people get celebrated and it becomes a reason that you might have them give a keynote at an investing conference, or it might carry them with their reputation through the rest of their lives. They were that bear market hero reveling in that great get-out call that they made. And while I acknowledge that when that happens, it's actually impressive, I think a lot of us realize that sometimes the bear market heroes have said that a number of times in the past, and in the future we'll call bear markets. And when they're not right, that won't phase them. They'll keep making calls. And the media often seems to forget or forgive that they were wrong any number of times. But we latch on to and remember that time with the cynic that the stopped clock 
was right. Again, I, I want to make it clear. I think some people have made great market calls. I don't think anybody does it consistently well. I don't want to gainsay or deny anybody their credit. I'm just explaining to you, Kelly, and to all my fellow rule breakers, why I try not to be a bear market hero. So those are some thoughts about what that phrase means to me. I will say when I tweeted something, a similar sentiment a couple of years ago, at Ready Player DC on Twitter, Danny Carpio wrote me back and said, you know, it's way better to be a jukebox hero anyway. And I agree. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number two. This one from Brandon Girock. Thank you, Brandon, for taking the time to write in and share your excitement about a company that we're going to take through its rule breaker paces. Now, the company is Exponential Fitness. The ticker symbol is XPOF. This is a small cap stock. It's not much more than about a billion dollars. But the note from you, Brandon, ends by saying shout out to Sanmit Deo for continuing to pound the table on this stock. I've been a believer, Brandon says, since Sanmeet first pitched it on Motley Fool Money in July of 2022, so last summer. Brandon says, I happily bought at just over $13 a share. As of this writing, it's over $30 a share. So it often can be true that it pays to listen to Motley Fool podcasts. Well, I want to welcome back celebrity guest star now, Sanmeet Deo, because Sanmeet, it was you speaking to this stock. Last summer, that created some joy in Brandon's portfolio. Samit, how you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I'm glad uh, I I had been pounding uh, pounding the table on the stock uh, repeatedly. I thought I was sounding like a broken record for a little while there. Well, and I I kind of missed it because I can't keep up with all of our podcasts at all times. But I'm delighted that you did. I know this is a stock that you own personally. Yes. Yes. And so, do you have a cost basis lower than Brandon's? Do you want to share your own performance in this one, or keep it private? Well, I'm happy to report that Brandon got a much better cost basis than me. My cost basis is twenty three dollars and seventy six cents. That is awesome. Now, I'm not looking at a stock graph, but does that mean you got in earlier and it dropped into July, or did you get in after Brandon did, presumably? It, I, I got in after Brandon did, I believe. He might have got it pretty close to the IPO price. Um, or soon after it IPO'd. All right. And that is, in fact, one part of this company's story. It's just been a public company for a couple of years. I see it IPO'd in 2021. Well, Samit, I thought it'd be fun to take this stock through the six traits of Rule Breaker stocks. And in fact, Brandon does that in his notes. So I figured let's share some notes and hear your perspective on this. I do want to mention he opens up his note by saying, It's been too long since I last wrote. Brandon, you wrote, First off, I want to thank you for mentioning Board Game Arena on your games podcast. It's been a great way for friends and family to connect over games. I'm delighted to know that. Is there any way, Brandon writes, that I could convince you and Rick Engdahl to play a game of Ticket to Ride with me? Well, maybe sometime, Brandon, but let's get back to Exponential Fitness. And Samit, in this note, he says, We nearly bought a yoga studio in February 2020, and that experience led me to really admire and understand the industry. Before we get into the six traits of rule breakers, Samit, you have your own experience in this industry as an entrepreneur. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because Exponential Fitness and one of the brands they own, Club Pilates, was a, a, a boutique fitness franchise that I was exploring as a possible franchise to open myself. I actually regrettably did not go with Club Pilates. I went with another uh, brand. It was a kickboxing brand. And I we, we operated that for a little while. Unfortunately, we closed it um, around the pandemic. But having had that experience analyzing a, a franchise and the brands, I knew I knew about Club Pilates. I knew about Exponential. So when they decided to go public, my eyes shot up and said, hey, let's look into this. That's great. And, you know, it it is a reminder. Sometimes we don't get a win in the way we think. For example, we start something. We hope that's going to be the win. And if it doesn't work out, and in fact, most small business enterprises don't necessarily work out in their first few years. I think the numbers show. Isn't it nice to think you can still get a win off of it, though, through the stock market? And if there was a competitor that in some ways knocked you out, to stick with our terminology around kickboxing, I mean, isn't it nice to know you can actually own their stock and make some money back? So I I would say you've definitely made lemonade out of a potential lemon. I'm really sorry to hear that you were opening or thinking about that right as the pandemic started, Samit. That must have been very difficult. Yeah, so we had opened it about three years before the pandemic. We operated it, and then when the pandemic hit, we were, you know, our our location was in New York City, and when the pandemic hit, we had to close temporarily, and then it was tough to to operate there. And then we just made the decision to move on and and continue on with, uh, you know, my wife and I decided to move on and continue on with our respective careers. Um, her being a physician and me being an analyst. Yeah, and <laughs> and you came to the Motley Fool, so we're very grateful for that. You know, it does remind me one of those cognitive biases that gets mentioned a lot in these kinds of circles, and sunk cost fallacy is one of them, where people decide, well, I've invested this much, I just need to keep investing and staying with it. And we often find some meat with stocks that it's maybe better to cut your losers, hold on to your winners, but cut your losers. It's not easy to do, especially when you've started something entrepreneurially. But congratulations on overcoming sunk cost fallacy, because a lot of people have a hard time with that. Well, let's get into trait number one for Rule Breakers, which is, of course, top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry. Now, I think of fitness as an important and still, yeah, emerging industry. It's many featured. I mean, we could say that fitness is within the health industry. You could start talking about things like nutrition, um, other medical devices. You could, I mean, lots of things touch the world of fitness, Planet Fitness. Um, there are lots of different companies. So, Top Dog and First Mover would be a bold thing to say about a company like this. I'm going to give you what Brandon says, then I want to hear what you say. That's what we're going to do with each of these six traits. So, Brandon says, Exponential is the largest conglomerate of boutique fitness studios. The boutique studio is a highly segmented industry, and Exponential, which, by the way, is spelled with the letter X. There's no E leading off the word exponential. Exponential is growing to be a strong force as a franchise model with 10 different fitness brands that it is scaling successfully. So, Samit, what is your take on the status of being a top dog and first mover for Exponential? Yeah, you know, Brenda does a great job hitting the nail on the head there. The only things I would add is, you know, as a top dog, Exponential is the dominant boutique fitness operator with over 2,300 U.S. locations. And that's almost double its next nearest competitor, which many have heard probably of Orange Theory Fitness. So, 
definitely a top dog there in the boutique fitness category. And it's also a first mover in the sense that it was very innovative with it in its approach to roll up multiple boutique fitness brands into one platform, which gives the franchisor diversification of brands and, and, and modalities. And also gives the franchisees the benefit of picking from different brands amongst the platform and also benefiting from shared resources. Excellent points. Thank you. And this is a company I'm still getting to know myself. Let's go to trait number two, a sustainable competitive advantage. Brandon says what really sets Exponential apart from other fitness brands is its diversification. It offers the X-Pass. That's again without the letter E ahead of things. So it's just Mm -hmm. big letter X-Pass, which allows members to visit any of the brands. It also has the benefit of supporting all the franchisees with online classes that serve as a funnel to local studios. This is something smaller players can't afford to offer. It's also capital light. With its franchise model, they're able to handpick franchisers who they expect to be successful. That's Brandon's take on the sustainable competitive advantage. Your thoughts, Samit? Yeah, again, spot on. Um, you know, by creating that platform, they're offering multiple different products and services to benefit of their members and franchisees. Another huge competitive advantage that I'd add on to that is they're compelling you know, studio level franchisee economics. So they for, for new franchisees, they get approximately 40% cash on cash returns. Um, and that's attracting new franchisees to the system as well, enticing them to expand within the portfolio of brands. So, you know, a healthy and happy franchisee base, which they have, gives them a huge competitive advantage. You know, that means a lot to me coming from any stock analyst. Thank you for doing the math for us, Sami. But it means even more coming from somebody who's actually operated with his, within this industry and speaks um, with more authority for me. And, you know, I've always said that tie goes to the entrepreneurs. I prefer those over the analysts, ultimately, because I believe people working within an industry see stuff and know stuff that the rest of us analyzing it from afar or even just from an armchair can't probably. But I especially like people who are both, who are both former entrepreneurs and analysts. Let's go to number three. This one's pretty simple, Sanmi. Trait number three of the Rule Breakers stock is strong past price appreciation. This is just about the stock, and this is purely numerical for the most part. XPOF, again, the ticker symbol, has trounced the market since coming public in 2021. It's up 146% as of this writing. Do you want to add anything to the simple math there? I think the key to that, too, is that the, that rise has been fueled by you know very impressive key member metrics, rising average unit volumes, and healthy earnings and cash flow growth. So it's not just a stock rise for the sake. The fundamentals are are definitely playing into that. Is the company profitable? It is. It just recently turned profitable and cash flow positive. Okay, yeah. Sometimes companies like these, well, some companies anyway, turn cash flow positive before they turn profitable. That's often one of my favorite signs for investors is when a lot of people are like, they don't make money, but if you look at the cash flow, they making money. And so sometimes uh, all of a sudden, those companies that initially become cash flow positive, as they then start to show profit, Wall Street gets more excited, investors notice, but those of us who figured it out a little bit ahead of time, like, for example, you and Brandon, uh, do better than the rest of us. Let's move on to trait number four of a rule breaker stock, and that would be good management and smart backing. 
Brandon's comment, pretty short here. I'm going to ask you for a little bit more, Sanmi. Brandon just points out that the founder remains the CEO, Anthony Geisler. His team has shown a phenomenal track record of identifying fitness brands and then scaling them. I don't know Anthony Geisler, but then again, I don't really know this industry or company. I'm having fun learning, too. Any additional thoughts? Yeah, you know, the, the, the cool thing is what you're saying kind of goes back to what you're saying about being an analyst versus being in the industry. You know, I had the opportunity to actually speak with Anthony um, on a franchisee exploration call um, and was very impressed with kind of what he was talking about, what he was looking to do with the. This was when they just owned Club Pilates and very impressed with what he was talking about in terms of how he wanted to grow the brand and what he wanted to do with it. I mean, ultimately, the reason I didn't pick Club Pilates is because it was brand new, hadn't been really fully proven out and the franchise I went with already had many established uh, studios with 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 um results so I was just a little hesitant for a new concept but you know he has a drive and I've been following him since then you know he has a drive to make money and he's visionary and innovative with kind of his approach to do so and it's shown with all the various things he's he's done within the exponential platform that's wonderful you know it, it reminds me you you picked a, a kickboxing franchise or brand. So, I mean, I'm assuming you're a kickboxer. <laughs> yeah, well, now I, I still continue to, you know, um, learn martial arts. My kids learn martial arts, and it's 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 a phenomenal exercise, phenomenal discipline. Um, and what's interesting about Club Pilates back then was the, the whole thought in my mind was, well, you know, is everyone is are men going to do club Pilates? Is it really that popular of a brand like a fitness concept? And turns out it's, it's, it is. Yeah, uh, it sure is. And I think Lululemon has had some success over the years courting and being recognized by men for some of their clothing and brands. You always hope that ultimately these kinds of brands can scale into both main gender markets because that feels like a bigger business to me than otherwise. But Appreciate you pointing that out. You know, I do want to highlight for University of Texas graduates and fans out there. I mean, we're hearing Sambi talk about New York City and his business, and he did work on Wall Street some before working at The Fool. But where did you go to college? You said it, University of Texas at Austin. Hook'em horns. Hook'em horns. All right, let's move on to trait number five. Speaking of hook'em horns, which is a pretty strong brand, well, that's what we look for. In rule breakers, I love to find companies that have within their industries, especially their buyer bases, of course, strong brands. Now, Brandon is giving this one a triple underline, Sanmeet. He says, This is Exponential's biggest strength, Club Pilates. Before I got this mailbag email from Brandon, I hadn't heard of Club Pilates. I certainly know Pilates, but I'm obviously not fit enough or cool enough to be hanging at the right franchises. But this was all new to me. But now, Given where we are in our conversation, I feel like you've already mentioned this a number of times. I'm already warming up to the brand, but Brandon says Club Pilates is a highly respected brand, and that is their largest franchise. I believe the X-Pass, Brandon goes on, will also start to really make Exponential a household name and really highlight the synergies among all the brands they're bringing to market. The X-Pass can make this a really sticky product long-term. Now, Samit, I see you nodding your head somewhat vigorously. I'm guessing you agree in general with Brandon's bullishness here around the brand? Yeah, you know, I love I love his uh, discussions about X-Pass because that's 
very intriguing concept that I think is going to really is really bringing in members to not just Club Pilates, as we've talked a lot about already, but other brands that they have. I mean, they have 10 brands and many of those brands are brands that they acquired. They didn't start from scratch and they're top names and go-to brands in their respective fitness finality, uh, modalities. So for example, Cycle Bar for cycling, Pure Bar for bar fitness, um, row house for rowing and then a newer one they have stretch lab which is literally just for stretching because this is an industry i don't know that well i do know planet fitness that's a stock that i picked for rule breakers it's certainly a brand many people will know and i I would say most people would recognize planet fitness as a brand probably before exponential or club pilates or even pure bar i mean i definitely see and know these brands i'm impressed by the umbrella of brands that exponential has here what are your thoughts, Sanmeet, if any, on Planet Fitness these days? You know, I do like Planet Fitness. It's, 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 it's a traditional gym that is low cost and drives a lot of people because of that low cost and actually um, of, uh, prevents them from, from canceling because it's just so cheap. Why, why even um, ha- why get rid of that option to go to the gym at any time? So I think both have a, have a place in the fitness industry, kind of on different aspects of the curve. Um, the thing, thing I love about Exponential is the community feel of the boutique brands where you're going to, to take class with your favorite instructors, you're meeting friends and div- making friendships amongst the community of, of fitness enthusiasts there. It really keeps that engagement and that, that commitment to that brand or that, uh, that studio um, alive. Yeah, you know, $6.9 billion is the market cap for those playing the market cap game. Um, for Planet Fitness, $6.9 billion is Planet Fitness's market cap. Exponential is just $1.6 billion, as I mentioned, a small, almost a micro-cap stock, so early days. But I think the bigger point here is it's a big industry out there. I mean, Planet Fitness itself is a relatively small upstart in the grander scheme of this whole industry. It certainly is, in many ways, an industry or category leader, but they are doing different things. It feels like, it's always felt to me like Planet Fitness is trying to democratize um, fitness. It's the gym for the rest of us, and they really play that up and they keep their prices low. Whereas when you're going to one of Exponential's brands, I think, as you just mentioned, you're going into more of a niche, more of a specialized set, people that you probably feel like you would know a little bit better or admire because they're doing the same, maybe relatively intense thing that you're doing. Whereas who knows who's next to you on the treadmill at Planet Fitness? All right, well, let's go to the Sixth and final trait of Rule Breaker stocks, and that is that they be considered overvalued by the financial media. Now, for new listeners and new hands to this, I'm not going to explain why we do this. We're not going to do a short course right now in Rule Breakers, but suffice it to say that I've always loved to find stocks that people think are crazy overvalued. Because in my experience, if they meet these other traits and people consider them overvalued, that's actually a double whammy of goodness for you. That means people are staying away from the stock, promising emergent companies, because they hear it's overpriced. You should wait for it to drop. It's so overpriced. So, I like that sign. Brandon speaks to it this way, Sanmeet. He writes, it currently trades, as of this writing, at a price-to-earnings ratio of 34, which has expanded significantly since it came public. It's by no means a cheap stock, which likely emphasizes its huge potential. Now, again, that's a very foolish sentiment, and a lot of people would debate that. Of course, since this is the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast, I strongly agree, Brandon, but I think you, Brandon, are conscious that you've made a highly contrary statement 
when you say that. Sami, what's your take on the valuation of the stock? Yeah, yeah, I can I can uh, argue it is trading still around 34 times 2023 earnings um and on its current um you know valuation is it is overvalued but it's uh it's still uh, I I'm very comfortable paying a premium for for the for the business. Well, there you go. Listeners, fellow fools everywhere, we just took you through the six traits of rule breaker stocks. Of course, investing comes down to a lot more than just anybody's list of six things, but these are the things that I really traditionally look for and prize above many of the other things that you can find on financial statements or as you investigate businesses. So, Brandon, thanks a lot for writing in and sharing your take on this small to micro cap stock that seems really interesting. In fact, Brandon ends and so, I mean, you may share this bullishness, but I, whether or not you do, it's very clear Brandon is bullish here. This really only touches the tip of the iceberg, he closes, of what gets me excited about this company. The company actually grew through the pandemic, didn't have to close a single location, a sign of anti-fragility, Brandon writes. The clientele leans toward upper middle class, which makes it more recession-resistant. Fitness is deemed a necessity. It will not be cut by this part of the population. The community that builds around boutique fitness studios also makes it difficult to leave. We made so many friends, Brandon concludes, at the yoga studio we attended. So, a number of promising aspects, and we've given Brandon a fair shake at getting his ideas out. So, I mean, I hope I've given you a good opportunity to get yours out as well. What would you like to add in closing? You can clearly tell Brandon's done a lot of research on on the company as well as the industry. And I really love the fact that he used his own experience to delve into a company and it, its potential and took the plunge and bought some some shares and and learned about it and clearly learned quite a bit about it. So I applaud him on those um, efforts and a great, great low-cost basis as well. So I too am very bullish on the name. I think it has a lot of potential domestically, internationally, and um, through continued growth. So I'm really excited to see where it goes. It is. It's it's a volatile stock. So anybody listening, obviously do your homework. There was a time last summer where the stock was at 25 and dropped to 12 just two months later. So, this stock has already been cut in half once on its way to about 150% gain over just a couple of years from its IPO. So, uh, invest according to your own risk profile, dear listener. Sanmi, great to be with you again. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me, David. Fool on, my friend. Fool on. All right. Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag, item number three. This one from Mahesh, writing in from London, and, of course, the United Kingdom. That London, thank you for this note, Mahesh. Dear David, I've been a long-time listener since 2018, but this is my first mailbag contribution. Well, I'm delighted to know that, Mahesh. You go. You've always said this podcast is one-third business, one-third investing, and one-third life. I always thought my first letter to you would be about business or investing, but it's actually about life, new life. I'm about to become a father for the first time at the end of the month. She may even already be here by the time you get this. Mahesh goes on, We go through a roller coaster of emotions, ranging from being excited, nervous, terrified, overwhelmed. But one thing we're certain of is the joy that our baby will bring to ours and our family's lives. You've mentioned your children a few times, graduations, games, stories, etc., 
and you've sprinkled in a few life hacks when it comes to kids. One that sticks with me, Mahesh writes, is to make note of silly things they say and use these at celebratory speeches, graduations, birthdays, etc. I'm so glad you were listening. Mahesh, yes, that remains one of my favorite life hacks for a dad or a mom to make sure when those children, especially age, let's say, three to eight, say really funny, offbeat, surprising things, timestamp it right then. Use your smartphone and record verbatim what they just said. I don't mean record them saying it. I mean just type in with some autocorrection, no doubt, as well what they just said. And if you do that over the course of years, you will build up an incredible treasury of goodness that can be used, as Mahesh mentions, at graduations, birthdays, weddings, etc. I'm so glad I did that, and I recommend it to all my friends and fellow fools. Anyway, Mahesh closes, I'd love to get more of these small yet meaningful nuggets when it comes to raising your children. We're ready to start this incredible journey of parenthood And the first Wednesday after she's born, we'll listen together, and she'll be your newest and probably youngest listener, yours, Mahesh. Well, this is such a delightful note. And first of all, congratulations, Mahesh, to you and your daughter's mom. I'm so happy for you and your family, and you're right to acknowledge it's not just about you, the dad and the mom. It's really about the whole family. Of course, you're about to make some grandparents grandparents, and that is a joy unto itself, I know. I am not yet a grandparent myself, but every grandparent I've ever met has said to me, it's even better in some ways because you get all the love and all the joy with less responsibility. But anyway, you are indeed taking on a huge responsibility. Many would say the most important responsibility we have in our lives, Mahesh. And so, sure, I'll give you a few more thoughts, life hacks, things that I've used that I've benefited from as a fellow dad. The first thing I think of is invest from day one. Now, I know you probably already know that. I hope you'd expect me to say that, but I truly encourage every parent of a new child, if possible, open up an account. It might be a gift trust account. There are different account types in different countries. You're in the United Kingdom. Open up an account in that child's name, if it makes sense, and begin saving, even if it's just your first pound, your first dollar, begin saving and investing for that child the benefits of compound returns from someone's first days, and we're actually going to hear about that a little bit later this week on this podcast, the benefits are immense. And so, since this is an investing podcast, at least a third of the time, you should know, I really think it's a great idea to invest for them, in them, from day one. Now, I realize not everybody can manage that. A lot of us are just trying to work our way out of student debt, in many cases, as we have our first child. But if you can, Open up an account in that child's name and get investing for them. They'll thank you for it so much later on. A second thing that I think of is I would recommend finding a few books on parenting. I'm going to give you one that I appreciated, but this is one of those topics that isn't taught in schools, and yet, like other things that aren't taught in schools, like the stock market, often these subjects are the most important our whole adult lives long. It's very ironic that we have very little teaching on this, but parenting, which itself probably entered as a verb, the concept of being a parent and parenting is a relatively modern phenomenon. I'm pretty sure our cavemen ancestors didn't really think too much about being a dad or what are the best tips to parenting. I'm I'm sure they cared. 
In part, we're around because the cavemen did it well enough that we're here generations later. But I do think most of us are understudied and undertaught. We think about what our parents did well. We try to do that. We think about what our parents did poorly. We try not to do that. I've benefited from some of the works of Jane Nelson, which is spelled N-E-L-S-E-N. Jane Nelson's approach, which has you using natural consequences for children. I think that's really helpful, especially for little kids. She also points out the great human need we all have at every age for belonging and significance. That's a big part of her work and her thinking. I would also say as a young parent, you would benefit from being more and more productive. And for me, and he's been a past guest on this podcast, David Allen and his wonderful book, Getting Things Done, is so helpful for your productivity. Our hours change most dramatically in life, I think, when we have a child, because we probably already have a job and we had our life outside of our job, but now we have a full-time responsibility. And young parents know this, and those who aren't there yet will find this out. You really need to start becoming much more productive, sometimes more selective. Even just David Allen's two-minute rule, Google that if you don't know what it is, dear listener, is helpful. A few more thoughts. One is just around photos. After all, Taking pictures of kids is something we don't just do as babies. We do it their whole lives long. We're all at least amateur photographers these days. And so, um, two photo tips that I've had, both of which I think I've shared in the past at different points in this podcast. The first is the rule of thirds. And anybody who's a professional photographer does this very naturally. But how many people don't know this? One of my tougher moments whenever I'm traveling to some beautiful place is when I'm about to take a selfie and some kind, well-meaning person says, hey, I'd be happy to take a picture of you guys myself. And inevitably, I and my companions, my family, whoever it is, will be like, well, thank you so much. Yes, we'd like that. But I have to admit, many a time have I been disappointed by the actual composition of the photo taken of me by that kind, well-meaning person who clearly didn't know the rule of thirds. Basically, you should find whatever your focal point is for the picture and offset it to the one-third ratio, either horizontally or vertically, of that shot. That's my way of saying if you're going to take a picture, a portrait picture of a friend, put them a third of the way over. Don't center them in the photograph. Similarly, if you're going to take a picture of sunset at the beach, position that sunset vertically, either a third of the way up the picture or two-thirds of the way up the picture, but don't put it right in the middle of the picture. So again, people who really know a lot more than I do, who actually know what they're doing about photography, will already know these things, but I have found many do not. So if this is news to you, Mahesh, you're welcome. I have just dramatically improved your family photos for the rest of your family's lives, I hope. I also want to say, Taking photos of things and then throwing them away is a great life hack to keeping uh, the rooms clean and the closets not overstuffed. That child is probably going to get participation trophies for being in micro league soccer or football over in the UK. Age four, they're out there on the pitch and they'll get a green ribbon for being a participant or a trophy. And you'll start to stack those up. And what I've found is They can overwhelm the storage capabilities of many apartments and houses, so I highly recommend using that smartphone camera to take pictures of things and toss them. Okay, Uh, one or two more thoughts. I would say avoid bad nutrition, or of course, a more positive way of saying it is study up and make sure that you're feeding your child as well as he or she can eat. Now, I admit myself I'm not the best 
eater, but if I were starting to raise kids these days, I'd be thinking a lot more about plant-based approaches to diets, and I would definitely be avoiding the junk food, saturated fats, all of those added stuff. I think, again, a lot of my listeners will already know that, and many of you will know that much better than I do and practice better than I do. But when I think about a new life and the compound returns of the actions and decisions we make from our earliest days, it really does compound to our benefit or our detriment. So I would just say, really think about that little life compounding forward, all those early decisions you make in terms of what we're feeding our kids. And I guess my last one, I presented this on Mental Tips, Tricks, and Life Hacks, Volume 6, the date October 6th of 2021. So you can spin back and find that podcast and listen to tip number two. It was a game my wife and I invented for our kids in the back of the car so they would stop asking, are we there yet, every time we drove a few hours to some destination that we were all trying to get to, but it would take a couple of hours. I think we've all done this many times in our lives as kids. We've heard it as adults. Are we there yet? And the quick version is simply that you make that something they're allowed to do three times. You turn it into a little bit of a game and let them know they have three opportunities to ask that question. This is even more fun when you have more than one child and they all debate. Should we ask now or should we wait and ask later? Because we can only ask, are we there yet? Three times. There's a little bit more I have for you in that podcast. Maybe you got to hear that one. But I can't think about raising kids and not think about that little game we invented, the are we there yet game. Well, Mahesh, again, Our best wishes from you at The Fool for being a great dad and getting off to a great start with that new little life that you are now the full-time steward of. And I will say, in my 56 years, the biggest life-changing moment of all, the biggest life-improving moment of all for me was when that first child came out of the womb and was born. I was very blessed and happy to be present. There were previous generations where the dads wouldn't even be in the hospital, let alone right there in the delivery room. But boy, If the scales didn't fall from my eyes and if my entire mindset didn't shift when that first child was born, congratulations to Mahesh, his wife, and daughter. All right, Rule Breaker mailbag item number four. And for this one, thank you for writing in, Daniel. I have my guest stars from Telling Their Stories, Volume 5, back One week only. I'll have you guys back on in future. But here we are again at the end of the month. I want to thank you both, Jeff Fisher and Kirsten Guerra, for telling your story in this podcast earlier this month. That was a real pleasure. And even though this doesn't speak to necessarily either of your stories, this is something a lot of younger people are thinking about. And I really appreciate your mentalities and how you think about things. I don't know where we're going to come out on this somewhat controversial topic of is college worth it anymore. But in so many words, Jeff and Kirsten, I would say that's kind of what Daniel is asking. Before I get into this, welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, David. So, um, anybody have any April updates? Has anything interesting, surprising, crazy, predictable happened? Favorite stock, up or down? Doesn't have to be about stocks. What do you got for me? Oh, it can be in our personal lives? Yes. I'm maybe planning a trip to Antarctica. That is incredible. So there's that. <laughs> so what is sparking that for you, Kirsten? Um, some friends wanted to go, and I love to just jump on a trip. 
And you take a boat, right? And usually you're leaving from like the southern tip of Chile or something yeah, like that, and exactly. you just go. And is it is it like three days or is it one? Day? How long does it take to get? Do you know? This one's well. The entire trip's going to be about fifteen days. Fifteen days. Um, so I think uh, I don't know, maybe closer to five or six days to to get to Antarctica. Right, and then you're there for a few days. Yeah. Just there, <laughs> at Antarctica. Yeah. What is going to push you over the brink, yes or no, on this one? I know you're saying you're thinking about it. Is there going to be a moment of decision coming? Um, yeah, the the determining factor is actually more on the cruise lines themselves. This is a very popular trip. Um, so right now, friends and I are looking at a single room that is left available on one cruise ship. So that's more a single room for for friends. Yes, yeah, it's it's three people, which is also a rare. Um, you know, less accommodating number on a cruise ship, but this isn't a double where you're hiding Sam in the back, is it? Your friend Sam, who's having to hide the whole time. We might have to consider that. Get a room for two, and then just <laughs> hide a stowaway. Jeff, have you been to Antarctica? Oh, what can I say after that? There's nothing I can say. <laughs> what are your plans, Antarctica, Jeff? Antarctica. Is there anywhere in the world more interesting that you could cite? Oh, I think I'm going to Antarctica. I would say probably not in the world, but mm. if you start looking outside this one planet, there are many <laughs> more interesting places. Although I think they're more dangerous and not necessarily as fun as they might be hyped up to be. That's kind of my feeling about Mars. I'm fascinated mm. by Mars. I think a lot of people are. But really, would I really want to spend a persistent amount of time in a place that doesn't have blue skies and fresh water and where I'm constantly worried about if there's a leak somewhere I could run out of oxygen. So, I, we just got a great look at Deimos, which is the moonlet of Mars. Did you see that this week? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did, Jeff. Yeah. Well, that's... maybe that's the interesting thing you could talk about, since obviously Kirsten has a much more interesting thing than whatever you're going to bring, but you could talk about your feelings about Deimos. Well, outer space in general is, of course, fascinating, but I love this planet, and there's nothing... Uh, every, people are going to hate me if I say this. Because I'm, I'm like I'm I'm like chopping exploration off at the at the bud. Like let's work on things here and get things right here, and then I mean we should we need to keep exploring. Ah, uh, this is a you're never gonna <laughs> you're never gonna stop humans. Some <laughs> of us humans, some amazing humans, from wanting to explore. You're never yeah, going to. Yeah, but I'm think, all for it. I think most but, of us actually share your sentiment, though, Jeff. I think you're speaking for the majority here when you say let's get things right here. And I'm and kind of hypocritically saying that because I do love every image that comes back from NASA, from all the telescopes, from everything that we're doing in space as well. So, great. I do too. All right, from Antarctica and outer space, we go to Daniel writing in from Cincinnati. Here we go. You guys ready? Yeah. Yes. Hey, David, I'd like to start by saying thank you for always being a positive influence, both in investing and in life. The Rule Breaker Investing and Motley Fool Money podcasts have been one of the greatest sources of happiness and investing information. Over the past couple of years, for me. Now, I want to pause there for a sec. He didn't just say, friends, the greatest sources of investing information. Kirsten, Jeff, this is such a... He said it's one of the greatest sources of happiness. Motley Fool Podcast. Thank you, Daniel. That is very thoughtful. My name's Daniel. I'm 20 years old. I'm in the Cincy area and strive to be an equity research analyst, perhaps even for the fool one day. I was planning on completing my bachelor's in financial management online, whilst, and right there I'm pausing because Daniel just rocked what I think of as almost 
an archaic term, or, or, or maybe more of a UK term. This is a 20-year-old. I was assuming Daniel is American, but he just said whilst simultaneously it. working. Whilst? Love it. Love it. What's happening in Cincinnati? I Something. Or maybe certain neighborhoods or specific online universities teaching the kids the new ways of thinking, which is going to be ironic as we get to the end of this note, to, to wonder more about that. So I think I was being slightly silly, but we're actually serious with this note and this this answer. So let me keep going slightly more seriously. I was planning on completing my bachelor's in financial management online whilst simultaneously working to be able to grow my personal portfolio of great businesses. Love that. This Daniel is an investor. While I definitely see some value in the degree, Jeff Fisher, Kirsten Guerra, it's not something I truly want. Not something that sparks joy. I'm eager to get started in work that I'm truly interested in, have a passion in, and ideally that I could achieve necessary credentials by getting securities licensed. As a financial services guru, what are your thoughts on my situation? And if there's any other route I could potentially take, he ends it full on. Daniel from Cincinnati. All right, first of all, I have no idea what either of you is going to say about this. I'm not even sure what I'm going to say about this, but the one thing I know for sure is I'm randomizing who goes first. Okay. David picked up his phone. He's now <laughs> holding it. This could, this could be us. narrated or this could be removed, but thank you, Jim. And for so, the audience, David has randomized <laughs> things in his life since at least the late 90s. Oh, yeah. With a yeah. palm pilot. This is a big thing for it's me. It's like, where do we thing. want to go for lunch? And David would randomize. A yeah. list on his Palm Pilot. Quicker decisions would, about things yeah. that don't matter, like who goes first answering Daniel's note. So what you don't know, David, is learning that in the 90s, I've since randomized everything in my life. Like, will I get married? Sure. <laughs> and look how you've Child? done, Jeff. Oh, okay. You've done so well. I'm proud of you. And, and I don't know if you're randomizing your answer to Daniel, but I know one thing. Kirsten, you're up first. All right. Great. Love it. Um, I also, by the way, really love the, uh, the Marie Kondo reference in here that it sparks joy, or does not spark joy. As do I. Marie Kondo, who has not previously appeared on this podcast, has been mentioned many a time and was an inspiration for one of our five-stock samplers. Kirsten. That's great. So first, I'll just say that I think having a degree isn't the end-all, be-all necessarily, but there's still something to be said for having one today. I think of it as kind of like a proof of performance at a certain level, just to have a degree. And I, I mentioned here on your podcast, David, recently that when I applied to The Fool, I didn't have a matching background. Mm-hmm. I have a bachelor's and master's in geology, and you can bet that the recruiters here, when I applied, did not care about my knowledge of rocks. But the degrees did tell them something, right? It just kind of shows generally that I have a work ethic, that I'm motivated, that I can learn And so if you think about a degree as a a proof of performance, then I'd say it's totally viable to forego that. But I would say only if you have kind of another really clear path to prove your performance Mm. in the market. Um, Like you mentioned, a securities license. And yeah, if if you know that you can hold yourself accountable and get your Series 6, Series 7, whatever it is, go for that. Those aren't degrees that I hold, so I can't provide a lot. Nor I, for the record, but yes. Yeah. Right, but yes, if you can if you can prove your path and hold yourself accountable, um, there are other options. I will say though, last thing in favor of a degree, um, 
I think there's a lot of value in having a very thorough and structured curriculum. Um, you know, something that you can trust that covers all the sort of foundational basics that you know you will need in a future career. Um, getting a degree isn't necessarily accessible to everyone. Uh, so it's important to acknowledge that and that you can learn these things on your own if you choose to and you're dedicated to it. But I will say it can be very hard. You know, as someone who right now has no formal educational background in, say, finance, but is piecing it together myself on the fly every As day. As a full-time Motley Fool employee. Keep going, Kirsten. Right. I just have to mention that there. I do definitely think there is value sometimes in that formalized education program. Mm. So you mentioned that you this doesn't necessarily spark joy for you. Um, and again, this isn't my background either. But I do wonder if maybe there are uh, other degree options that are maybe closer to what does spark joy for you. Because what was the huh. degree, David? Well, it was. He said financial management. Right now, this is somebody who loves investing, and I w- I think there's a lot of overlap with financial management, Kirsten. But um, is there some nuance we're missing here? Maybe maybe it's all just about asset allocation, and this is a guy who would love to analyze companies and stocks. Right. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Is there not a program you can find that is closer to what, like finance alone? I think would be a pretty uh, a pretty helpful to degree to have in what I do day to day. You know, I think that's pretty darn good advice. And while I already admitted I didn't know what my advice was going to be, I think I'm kind of leaning with Kirsten. I'm not sure I have anything unique to say after that. That was very thoughtful. And thank you, Kirsten. Uh, I'm not going to randomize anymore, Jeff. I had you on because I really wanted to hear from you, not me. Where do you most clearly agree with what Kirsten just said? And Jeff, where do you most clearly disagree with what Kirsten just said? I'll start with where I would disagree, and I think that's where Kirsten suggested maybe you don't need the degree at all. Find another path. And I think that's that's good advice that I was going to say myself until I heard wow. <laughs> Kirsten say so, it, and then I thought, well, I don't need to say that. And two, I'm not sure if I agree with myself, aka with what Kirsten just said. So here's why. And then everything else I agree with. And I actually do agree with that, with that statement as well, but I you but I don't want to thoughts. say it. You're bringing some nuance. Yes, I guess I guess so. If maybe, possibly. But here we go. Let's. Here, here's the <laughs> thought. A degree is an asset uh, that you have, as well as an insurance policy against the unknown. If you're at this point in life now where you have the opportunity, a word Kirsten used, not everyone gets the opportunity to get a degree, and you have the bandwidth and the time and energy. Now's the time to go for it, and then you have it the rest of your life. Mm. Uh, it is an asset. You should view it that way. You say it, it isn't giving you joy. Great advice to, to maybe change your focus if you can. Agreed. But also, not everything will give you steady joy. Some things are grit. It's more it's going to be grit. It's going to prove that you have grit. You have to get through it because you know in the end it's, it's valuable. Um, it, it isn't just about money, of course, but a a study, and we have to acknowledge where the study came from. It's from Georgetown. We, we rarely do that on this podcast, <laughs> but go ahead and break some it, new it, ground. It is from the Georgetown <laughs> Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. So it's Georgetown. They're like in the neighborhood. Yeah, they, right. they might be slightly biased. Go Hoyas. But they do Hoyas say. Saxa. <laughs> Bachelor's degree holders generally earn 75% more than those with just a high school 
diploma per year. So that's, I mean, it's a large difference. Not just about money, you want to be happy, but again, it's an asset in your pocket. Well, I'll just mention, I mean, Daniel's 20. So I'm thinking Daniel's maybe a junior. Uh, I think there's all, we were talking earlier in the podcast about sunk cost. And sometimes the sunk cost fallacy, which is that, you know, you've done enough there, you you better finish it out. We're not applying that in this particular case. But I can imagine some people might say, well, you've already spent this much in tuition. You've already gone through this much time. You're near enough to the finish line. I'm not sure it's fair to call that sunk cost or say that's fallacious thinking to think you should finish. You use the word grit, Jeff, and that's certainly a word in recent years that has been bandied about by people who are trying to convince sometimes a whole generation that a participant ribbon is not enough. You need to fight it. You need to go for it. You're not going to be rewarded as an adult for not actually achieving. So I'm hearing some of that tough love from you, Jeff Fisher. Yeah, another great point Kirsten made, because now I have to make up for forcibly disagreeing with one thing. <laughs> yeah, because I, I asked you to please disagree. I mean, this is better podcasting. Which is exactly that the degree shows everybody that you do have grit and that you have met this standard. And and that was my third point that I just remembered, and it's maybe the most unfortunate point to share with Daniel, and that is I asked some colleagues here today at the office, uh, younger colleagues and older alike, who have worked in different parts of the industry, and they each said that it's table stakes to have a bachelor degree. It's okay. very hard to get into finance uh, without that degree, so it's it's really sought after. Now that all said, I do. I mean, so many people excel and thrive and never have a degree. So it's, it's true, and don't need we've it. had those people come through the fool in the past. I think of Aaron Bush, um, our wonderful longtime fool, still so young, so much ahead of him, no longer at the company doing his own thing. But Aaron was one of those self-motivated, high-motor guys who, after his freshman year, I think it was University of Texas, we've been mentioning the Longhorns a lot this week on the podcast, but he was out. And I think that he started doing the math and realized, you know, I could be earning instead of spending about equivalent amounts, spending it on tuition or earning it. And if you start playing that math forward, and yet I really appreciate, Jeff, that you took some time to canvas Full HQ today and here's some different viewpoints and generally feeling Daniel and everybody else listening that it's table stakes in the world of financial analysis, investment management, financial management online, Daniel, to have that degree. So, I was willing to be almost anything in this conversation. In fact, I was just thinking of the movie Zelig, which, looking at Wikipedia right now, one of my best friends, Zelig, the 1983 American mockumentary directed by and starring Woody Allen himself as Leonard Zelig, a nondescript enigma who apparently, out of his desire to fit in and be liked unwittingly takes on the characteristics of strong personalities around him. And that's what I was willing to be. I was willing to be zealot because I really wanted to hear from you both. You both had strong opinions and viewpoints, and I find myself wittingly wanting to agree with you both. Even though I think we all can think of exceptions to this, and people like Peter Thiel have been rumored to pay people not to go to college. There's a lot of question. Maybe let's close with this on this one, Kirsten and Jeff. Um, college is a lot more expensive today than in the past. I mean, when tuition rates continue going up 7% a year or so, and that's not compounding as fast as the stock market, but it compounds a lot faster than many other things. So I think that, the, and the internet disrupting almost every industry, including bricks and mortar, seems like 
this is one of the areas where it still hasn't quite, but it does, at a certain point, you start running the math, you start wondering, should I go four years for a full college? Obviously, some people do community college these days, two years, etc. Any final thoughts on college, Zelig, life? I will just say I see your disagreement, Jeff, and I <laughs> will raise you agreement because the my favorite word that you said was asset, and I think that's absolutely correct. Mm. The degree is an asset. I said proof of performance. It's kind of like an asset, right? Um, and I, I think it is an important point to say that in the financial and tangential inju- industries in general, um, there are table stakes, right? This is a more regulated industry. Uh Similar to, you know, like geology that I was in, you certainly couldn't waltz into the position I had without a degree. Um, So depending on where exactly you want to go, and it does sound like you're pretty firm on that, um, definitely a degree is an asset that is uh, really worth considering um, if if you can financially make that happen. And I'll just say I love that you posed the question to us because David raised good points about the cost, the time, the the world changing so quickly. You could go through a four-year college degree these days, and by the time you graduate, the whole landscape has changed underneath your feet. So it's an important thing for every person considering college to consider exactly what they want to study and how they're going to use it, and will it remain you know, pertinent, relevant, as you get the, the, the degree. You know, I, I really appreciate, let's underline that to close. I really appreciate you pointing that out, Jeff, that Daniel took the time to ask the question. A lot of people don't necessarily or wouldn't have the courage to or write into a podcast and become a, a symbol, a public symbol of questions around the viability of college these days. Daniel, I'm not trying to make you into anything more than what you are, which is somebody passionate about the topic of finance and investing. Um, we haven't been hiring that much over the last year. We tend not to in bear markets at The Motley Fool, but I hope you'll keep an eye out at careers.fool.com over time. But continue to equip yourself, as Kirsten was saying, with assets that will make you smarter, happier, and richer. And I think that generally degrees, especially degrees within the sphere of the businesses where you want to work, uh, can, can help you in that regard. So thanks for writing in, Daniel. Fool on. You know, I was having a fun conversation with a friend the other day who said, um, Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out, I'm asking myself this question these days Am I happy? And then another friend listening in the conversation said, You know, in my experience, people who are happy, Never take the time to ask if they're happy. They're just happy. They're just being the happy person that they are. And so my friend turned to my other friend and said, I'm guessing you're actually not happy if you're asking if you're happy these days, (laughs) which is kind of funny. So Daniel taking the time to ask whether this is sparking joy for him or not, it sounds like it's probably not. But Kirsten, your advice about maybe you should tweak your major, I think that's really, really smart. Okay. Well, one more rule breaker mailbag item for this podcast. And if you guys want to hang around, please do. This one's from Doug Nowak. It's just more kind of pure joy, but here it is. David, I was just listening to the March mailbag discussion about the GKC, the Gardner-Kretzmann Continuum. wanted to share my family's experience in our GKC. My 12-year-old son has a GKC of 8.4. Zooming out briefly, this is, of course, the ratio of somebody's number of stocks to their age. That is the Gardner-Kretzmann Continuum 
briefly to define our terms, especially if I'm going to be rocking acronyms on this show. I want to make sure you know. So, what Doug has just said is that his 12-year-old son has 102 stocks. That's a GKC of 8.4. Doug goes on, my 9-year-old daughter, 11.6, because she has 104 stocks, and me... Doug Nowak, 107 stocks at the age of 44. So he's a 2.4. I've been buying them stocks every year since birth, using their birthday and holiday money. Their combined portfolios are now in the low six figures from consistent buy and hold investing. Their top eight holdings Shopify, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, Trade Desk, Mercado Libre and NVIDIA, have all been held for at least six years and are all up at least four times, with some up over eight times. And yes, Doug and Jeff and Kirsten and everybody listening, that includes the market drops of the last year or two. Doug goes on, as they've gotten older, I've gradually taught them more about investing and other financial matters. My 12-year-old son is also now involved in picking the new stocks to buy every year, which primarily are Motley Fool Stock Advisor or Rule Breakers Rex. He also listens to financial podcasts with me on the way to school, including Rule Breaker Investing. He particularly enjoys the Market Cap Game Show. I have attained financial independence, Doug closes, in my early 40s. Due to some luck, fortunate timing, living below our means, consistent investing, and other good financial decisions. The Motley Fool services of Stock Advisor, Rule Breakers, Options, and formerly Pro have greatly contributed to the excellent market-beating results in both my and my kids' portfolios. I am trying to pass on my financial knowledge to my kids so that they will hopefully achieve second-generation financial independence at some point. Thanks for all you do. And keep up the great work, Doug Nowak. What a great note. You know, Jeff, I've often said, I shoot for best for last on this podcast. That was so inspiring because it wasn't just about financial independence, although that really is what we're trying to create for as many people as come across The Motley Fool at any stage of their lives. And I'm glad, Doug, that we've played some small role for you. But how about including the kids? Just love it. It's, it's, Heartwarming, but it's inspiring. That's what I loved about most about the note as you read it, David. Is it? It struck me again how anyone who can save some money, and it isn't easy always, but if you can get to the point where you can save a little bit, even a hundred dollars a month, and put it into stocks, then you can change your financial life over your life within your lifetime, over your lifetime, and then for your children as well. So it's a great example. And I love the image of Doug and his children learning about investing together and talking about their companies together and so forth. And I'll end with this one thought. Ten thousand dollars invested in the S P five hundred in nineteen eighty was worth more than one point one million dollars at the end of last year. So just ten thousand dollars was forty two years ago can become a million. Just put it in the market and let it. So that is akin to what Doug is doing, but even better in our foolish minds. He's buying individual companies and growing with them over time and bringing his kids along. So just great, David. What else can I say? Love it. I would say that's that's so many stocks, and it's funny because for me, if I owned that many stocks, it would make me uncomfortable. But somehow for a kid, I actually like it more because really at that age, 
more than even worrying about returns, I think you're worrying about learning, right? And just establishing your foothold and what all this means. The market can be very confusing. Um, and I especially love that, you know, these kids could turn 18 and in theory, you could go online and start learning about stocks and you could research the history of the S&P 500 and see how certain stocks, you could learn lessons about how certain stocks have um, grown and that would have concentrated a portfolio, all these things in theory. But the fact that they can actually look back at the history of their own portfolio that has been helpfully curated with them, with their parents, this is, um, that's great, right? That's a real connection to what's actually happening that, in my mind, just makes it far different than, you know, kind of looking at the generic history. I think that really connects you to what it's all about. Beautifully diversified portfolios full of some great companies. You've let your winners run, Doug and kids. We're proud of you. We're just delighted to call you fellow fools. And thank you so much for taking the time to write in and share that story. Thanks, of course, to all of our correspondents for this the April 2023 Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. I'm going to close with this. In a way, I guess it's a preview of next week when Wired Magazine co-founder Kevin Kelly, author of the wonderful book The Inevitable, joins me for discussion next week in Kevin's new book, which is entitled Excellent Advice for Living, which is, I think, what we've been trying to do the last 15 minutes or so. Kevin, on page 85, writes, this. All the greatest prizes in life, in wealth, relationships, or knowledge, come from the magic of compounding interest by amplifying small, steady gains. All you need for abundance is to keep adding 1% more than you subtract on a regular basis. Full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.